As you're being seated, I want to invite you to take in your bulletin, there's a copy of our church covenant. And you'll see a copy like this, and the words may be on the screen for us this morning too. But uh, you'll see a copy of this in your bulletins if you take it out on the back side of the sermon outline. And we're going to, I'm going to read that in just a moment. Uh, we've asked you to stand up a lot this morning, so I'm not asking you to stand during this. We'll let you sit. But uh, before I do that, uh, one other announcement as you're finding that. Uh, don't want to overlook our junior high youth ministry. They're starting up their, uh, they took a summer break and they're starting up their meetings tonight. They had a swim party, a pool party last last Sunday night at the Slater's home. Had a great time. There's about 30 kids there. And uh, so they posted about their Bible study. They're going to begin this evening and they meet at 6 o'clock. So don't forget that if you're in junior high. We look forward to that. As a church family, uh, we come and we come to remember the gospel and remember what it is we believe, like we've been singing about this morning, and, and what exactly belief means, which hopefully I'll preach about more this morning. It's more of a trust and reliance than merely an intellectual assent. But as a church family, as members who actually join this church and become members of our church, we, uh, we agree that this is our church family, where we're going to hold one another accountable to live a Christian life and that we're going to serve one another as well. And so it works both ways. We'll be served and we'll serve others in our church family. And we also agree that we'll hold one another accountable as well. And so our church covenant is an expression, a written expression of what we believe the Bible teaches about how we are to live out the Christian life together, about how we're to live together as a church family and live out the biblical principles and our convictions before our God. And so uh, we're having the Lord's Supper this morning. And the Lord's Supper is something we observe the last Sunday of each month normally. And so when we do that, it's a good opportunity for us just to be reminded of our covenant commitments that we have before God and one another. And so uh, especially for those of you that are members of our church, if you're not, we'd love to talk with you about that. But especially for those of you who are members, this is an opportunity for us to be reminded of that. So I'm going to ask us as we're seated this morning to, to read through this with me. I'm going to lead us in reading this together. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, in this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to support the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the relief of the poor, and to the spreading of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and private devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our conduct, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and Christian courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church 
where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. Before our ushers come, after I pray this morning, before the ushers come, uh, I want to remind you there won't be any children's church this morning because we're observing the Lord's Supper and like to have our children in here with us during that time. But before the ushers come this morning to take up this morning's offering, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before You. You are our God. You're our rock. You're our refuge. On God alone is our salvation and our glory. You alone, God. We don't rest it on anything else. And You have laid a sure foundation in Your Son, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. And so we thank You that it has been laid and it will not be moved. You do not change Your promises. Your promises are like You, God. They never change. So we thank You for the gospel that we've come to remind one another of and to sing and to praise You for this morning, to exalt You, God, and to encourage one another in it. We thank You for our church family and the commitments that we have to one another and how we can look and see those commitments being lived out and, and the care that we have for one another. And Father, we pray that You'll forgive us where we fall short in those areas as well. Lord, we ask this morning that you would be with our church family and those who are hurting and sick. Uh, and we know that uh, Lori Fowler's been in the hospital over the weekend and they're trying to find out exactly what's caused pain for her. And, uh, and so, Lord, we pray that you alleviate the pain and show the doctors what's wrong and heal her. And, and Lord, we, we know that others are, are going through difficult times and some have been in the hospital, some have lost loved ones recently. We ask God that you'd sustain our church family and that you might comfort, Lord. You're the God of all comfort. Lord, we pray for the nations this morning. We pray for the lost to be saved. God, that the gospel might go forth from this place to our neighborhoods and to our community here in Mount Carmel, Lord, but also into the, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord, do this for your glory and your name's sake. We ask now that you would take the offering that we're giving. Lord, we know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't need anything, but you've given all that we have to us. It all belongs to you. Lord, help us to be good stewards. Help us to ask ourselves how much dare we keep rather than how much should we give. Lord, may it use to be extend your kingdom for your glory and the fame of your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Miss Marcia. And I'd ask you to take your Bibles with me this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. And uh, you can turn there in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. And I am going to ask you to stand with me again as we honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 7. And I'll begin reading at verse 15. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray again. Our Father, we ask now that you might magnify your name and glorify your name and exalt yourself in your word. Help us to see who you are and how we should respond in light of this revelation. We thank you for the grace that's been given to us to hear the word. We recognize that many are not living in places in the word where they have access to the word of God. So God, help us now not to take these moments for granted. Give us an attentive spirit, a teachable spirit. Lord, help us to hear the word of the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Beware of false prophets. That's the thrust of this passage of Scripture. It's pretty straightforward. And I think as we see how Jesus illustrates the danger of false prophets, it might be helpful to be reminded of what happened to Little Red Riding Hood. If you remember, uh, she came along after the big bad wolf had snuck in and ate ate Little Red Riding Hood's grandma, the big bad wolf. Uh, dressed up in grandma's clothes and got into the bed and waited for Little Red Riding Hood to come along. And she came into the house and she saw what she thought was grandma on the bed. And she said to her grandma, she observed something that didn't look quite right. She said, now this is the East Tennessee version, Grandma, what big old arms you got? And the grandma said, all the better to hug you with, my dear. And she said, Grandma, what big old legs you got? She said, all the better to run with, my child. Grandma, what big old ears you got? That's some big old ears, Grandma. All the better to hear you with, my child. Grandma, what big eyes you have? All the better to see you with, my child. Well, Grandma, what big teeth you got? All the better to eat you with, my dear. And she gobbled up. Little Red Riding Hood, the big bad wolf. We're warned in this passage of Scripture that such a thing is not just a fairy tale when it comes to the kingdom of God in relation to false teachers. In fact, we see two things right off about false teachers I want to share with you. False teachers, like the big bad wolf dressed up in grandma's clothes, false teachers are deceptive. False teachers are deceptive. They don't wear t-shirts that say, hello, I'm a false teacher. They wear big smiles when they talk to you about what they believe. 
Sometimes they wear white shirts and black name tags that say elder. And they talk very politely to you. But the Bible says here, if you look in your Bible, what does it say in verse 15 about them? Beware of false prophets who come to you. What's your Bible say? In sheep's clothing. False teachers are deceptive. Secondly, false teachers are dangerous, obviously. Just like Little Red Riding Hood got eaten by the big bad wolf. She didn't use discernment and got eaten. These false teachers are nothing to be played around with. They are dangerous. Notice what your Bible says. Are you looking at your Bible in the verse 15? But inwardly, what are they? They are ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves. Literally, that word means to extort or to steal. These wolves, these ravenous wolves, these false teachers, they want to take something. They want to extort something. They want to steal something. And what is that? Well, sometimes it is money, right? We know that about false teachers. Sometimes that's what they're really after is just your money. And sometimes, really all the time, what they're really after is something much more precious. And it's your soul. False teachers, maybe even subconsciously, maybe not even knowingly themselves, they're after your soul. False teachers are deceptive and false teachers are dangerous. Paul told the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he warned them about false teachers. He says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, the same type of language, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. God's church is like a flock of sheep. And he is the great shepherd. And you have under shepherds, like pastors and elders, who are to shepherd that flock. But it says here in Acts chapter 20, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So you see there's dangers about how these wolves come. It says these false teachers, they come to you. Sometimes they come from the outside as a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon. And it's, sometimes it's very obvious to us if we're aware of those teachings of those cults. But sometimes they arise from among you. Sometimes they can creep in right in your own church family if you're not careful. That's the reason we have to be careful. That's the reason we don't allow someone to teach in our church unless they've actually become a member of our church. And by doing so, they're saying, we agree with the doctrinal teachings of this church as recorded in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So they're safeguards. They don't wear T-shirts, these false teachers, but they do bear fruit. Do you see that in your Bible? They don't wear T-shirts, but they do bear fruit. Look at verse 16. Notice what your Bible says. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then look again in verse 20. Verse 20 says the same thing. Jesus says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Trees don't bear fruit overnight, do they? It takes a little time for the tree to produce its fruit. And so so it is with false teachers at times. I hope you understand the point. Sometimes it may not be immediately obvious that someone is telling you something or teaching you something that's wrong or that that person, there's something wrong with them because they're a false teacher. Trees don't bear fruit overnight. No one in their right mind walks up to an oak tree and says, why aren't there oranges growing on that oak tree? You don't expect oranges to be growing on an oak tree, right? 
Why don't people ask that? Verse 16, Jesus illustrates it the same way. Look at the end of verse 16. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's impossible for oranges to be on oak trees. It's impossible for grapes to be gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. That's impossible. You don't expect that. You should. Here's the thing about false teachers. Jesus is saying, you should expect certain things to be consistent with the gospel. If someone calls, comes around talking about Jesus, saying they're a Christian, and they've got something they want to share with you, you should expect certain things about what they're saying and about how they're living to be consistent with the gospel. Look at verse 17. Are you looking at your Bible? So every healthy tree, verse 17, every healthy tree bears what? Good fruit. If they're healthy, they'll bear good fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If we look back in verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. The same point. You expect certain things to be consistent and not inconsistent. If it's healthy, if it's teaching the right message, there should be good fruit. If not, stay away from it. One of the things John the Baptist said when he was on the scene preaching before Jesus came in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, is he said to that brood of vipers, those Pharisees who were teaching the Word of God, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Your life and your message, he was saying not only to the teachers there, but also the people that were present as well as he was baptizing. They were coming to watch him baptize. He said, You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There needs to be some consistency with what you're saying about your relationship with God. In fact, if you know Him, your life should show that. And not just mouth the words, We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. That's a great song. I love that. I love the Apostles' Creed. But what does it mean to believe? It's a repentant belief. It's a belief that says, I believe this, and so I'm going to turn, I'm going to follow our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to turn from my sin and follow Him. That's what we mean when we say, we believe, we trust, we rely. Otherwise, we just have the devil's faith. So if it's true we have saving faith, it'll be repentant faith. If not, then we will not be bearing fruit in keeping with a repentant faith, in keeping with repentance. Here's the main point of this thrust of this passage of Scripture. Are you ready? And it's just summarizing up what I've already said. Beware of false teachers who claim to speak for God. That's what a false teacher is. They claim to speak for God whose words and ways are not consistent with the gospel. They claim to speak for God. Maybe they'll use Jesus' name. Often they will. But their words... And the way they live their life, the ways of their life are not consistent with the true gospel. So to recognize this, to recognize this fruit, you've got to know what the gospel is, right? You've got to know what the message is. What, What does real fruit look like? You've got to know what the authentic thing is. What is the gospel? What is the good news of the kingdom of God? So when I say, what is the gospel? This is, and when somebody joins our church, for example, and many of you have come through our church membership class and, and uh, sat with me in a kind of an informal membership interview, one of the first things I ask when somebody wants to join the church is, tell me what the gospel is. And I don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four gospels. That's where we find the 
understanding of the Gospels, but also the rest of the Bible as well. But what is the good news? Or I'll reframe it this way. What would you tell someone if they were to ask you, how can I know for sure I'm going to heaven when I die? Can you answer that question? Do you have confidence? I mean, certain people are at certain... We're all, we're all at different places in our spiritual walk where we are able to articulate things differently uh, uh, or maybe not as well as a better way of saying it. it should be the same message. But can you answer that question, what is the gospel? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said this. If you turn over there in Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law. And if you look in chapter 7, verse 12, chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says this. It's the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. It came to fulfill. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. So what did Jesus do? What did He come to do? Jesus came to say, Loving others, you have them doing to you. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Matthew says in another place, a couple different times in the Gospels, on this hangs the law of the prophets. It's to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, I didn't come to come to do away with that. In the Sermon on the Mount, He's clarifying what that looks like. You've heard it, it was said, you shall not murder. I tell you, you should not have anger in your heart towards one another. This is what it really means to love your brother. Not just to kill him, but to not want to kill him. Or to not hate him. This is the law of prophets. And guess what? We don't do it. We fail. When you read the Sermon on the Mount as we've been going through it, it slays you. It leads you. It should lead you to the point where you say, how can I do this? It's not that the Sermon on the Mount is here for us to just say, okay, I can't do it. Help me. No, He really wants us to live this way. This is true instruction. This is how we're to live our life. And if we don't, we will perish. But we can't. So it ultimately it points us to the need to be saved by Jesus, the good news. Good news is that I'm spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, right? What is the gospel, folks? That I'm unable, I'm unable to save myself. I have broken the law and the prophets. I've bro- I cannot love God and my neighbor perfectly. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are we to do with that? We can't. We need outside help. We can't save ourselves. We need His righteousness. So the good news is this. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish that. Don't think that Jesus has come to lower the standards so that everybody can go to heaven. He said, I didn't come to do that. I came to establish it. I came to fulfill it. And how did He fulfill it? It all pointed to Him and His coming, and He also fulfilled it because He did it. We couldn't do it, and we didn't do it, but Jesus did it. He loves God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength, and He loves His neighbor as Himself perfectly, right? So I was preaching about this a couple of Sundays ago. And then He goes to the cross, having lived this perfect way, done what we couldn't do, but then He's treated by the Father as if He didn't do it. And as he's been inconsistent, as if he's not loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself. 
But if we put our trust in Him, here's the good news, right? If we put our trust in Christ, He looks at us and treats us as if we did do it, right? Amen? I mean, that's something to be excited about. That's a glorious exchange. That is the good news. Faith in Christ, we go from being looked upon as if we've sinned to look upon as if we have never sinned. And the way that's received is not by works. It's received by trusting and putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, leaning upon Him, Him and Him alone. That is the good news. And like I said, we may articulate it uh, not as well, or you may not scream and get red in the face and sweat when you're talking about it like I am right now, but we need to know what the good news is, right? So we recognize what is not good news. And I've told some people before that I've sat across a table from who've been talking with me uh, uh, from another... uh, Sometimes I know they're from a cult. Sometimes I just don't believe they're true believers. And I've told them, what you're telling me... And I don't get hateful with them. I say, what you're telling me is not good news. This is not good news. Even if what you're saying about Jesus is right, which it's not, I may say to this individual... You're still relying upon yourself to save you. So, listen carefully. Jesus says, recognize them by their fruits. What is the gospel? I hope you got that in mind right now. You're, you're talking with someone, somebody knocks on your door, they got a smile on their face, maybe they got a name tag on, maybe they're with a couple other people dressed really nice, or you're at school and somebody's talking with you about what they believe, or you're in a college class, or whatever the setting might be share two things with you about recognizing their fruit so you can get ready to run or stand firm in the faith. Both. Number one, listen for Christ. Listen for Jesus. Listen for Christ. Not talking about just listening for Jesus' name. You'll probably hear that from these false teachers. But really listen for Christ. John chapter 10 verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, And they follow me. They just don't hear the voice, right? Here we go again. They just don't hear the voice. I know them and they follow me. They turn and they follow. Listen for Christ. If you're a believer, you know what His voice sounds like because His voice is the Word of God, folks. This is not some weird, okay, I'm listening for Christ. Christ, speak to me. No. This, This is Christ. This is the Bible. Know your Bible. Know what it says about Christ, how it points to Christ, how it's, all of it's fulfilled in Jesus. So listen for Christ. Recognize the words false teachers don't say. Recognize the words they don't say. Our kids are good at this. Can't have any candy today. Later they got cookie crumbs on their face. What's up? You said no candy, but not. You did not say no cookies. The spirit of it was, you know, stay away from snacks. We need to understand that these false teachers are very clever as well sometimes about what they don't say and what they cover up. So listen for Christ. What's Jesus? Let me ask you a question. What is the first word of Jesus' public ministry? He was tempted in the wilderness, right? But in the Gospel of Matthew, what's the first word that Jesus says in His public ministry? Repent. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he says, he starts his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you're talking with this, this person, listen for Christ. Are you hearing anything about repentance? Or are you just hearing easy believism about their form of Jesus and about their form of salvation? Are you hearing anything about repentance? Listen for Christ. He's not an easy believism preacher. He's a repentant faith. Trust in me and follow me. Jesus is not a feel-good preacher. So he comes and he says, don't take oaths a certain way and don't, and don't uh, go back on your word and so forth. But the false teachers of the, of the religious scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23 are con- condemned for doing that. See, the Pharisees, I believe Jesus has in mind the Pharisees who are teaching the word of God. And in their teaching, there's no narrow way. Jesus talks about a narrow way and a broad way. For false teachers, it's only the easy way. It's the wide gate. There's no narrow way with the false teachers. Listen for Christ. Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. And then they pick up stones to stone him because you making yourself out to be God. They understood Exactly what he was claiming to be. Not just unity with the Father. He's claiming to be one with the Father. God the Father and God the Son are one. Not the same, but they're one. Listen for Christ. Do they affirm the Trinity? Listen for Christ. Do they mention suffering or persecution? Listen to this one. Do they mention suffering or persecution? They may not come knocking on your doors, but I guarantee you, you turn on your television this afternoon and they'll be on your TV. They'll be on the radio. And when you listen to them, sometimes very gifted speakers, maybe good self-help speakers, but do they mention persecution or suffering or anything about repentance? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Do you hear Christ? Is there anything about how repentance is going to cost taking up a cross and following Jesus? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Are you warned that if you try to live like a Christian, somebody make, make fun of you for righteousness, for being a Christian, give you a hard time at school? Listen for Christ. Do they proclaim the exclusivity of Christ, that He's the only way? Jesus is not a universalist. He says in verse seven, chapter 7, look at it again, verse 13 of chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. He's not a universalist. There's an exclusive way. And He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Listen to the, for the exclusivity of Christ, which they will try to cover up. You see, you're listening for what they're not saying. And they're not going to say that. They're not going to say, well, we actually believe there's many ways or that Jesus is the Son of God, but we, He was actually created by God. That's what the Mormons teach and Jehovah's Witnesses believe. A lot of weird stuff out there, folks. Listen for Christ. Do they proclaim Jesus saves? Well, sure, a lot of them will. A lot of them are going to say Jesus saves, their version of Jesus or even if they got their version of Jesus right, what do they mean by Jesus saves? What are they not telling you? You have to learn to ask the right questions or run away if you're not able to ask the right questions. 
What do they mean Jesus saves? Does he completely save or does he make it just possible to be saved? Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but it's up to you to do the rest and hope that you make it and just pray that you'll make it. This is justification by faith alone. Anything that's not justification by faith alone is a false teaching, folks. Look for Christ, secondly. Listen for Christ. Number two, look for Christ. Can you see Christ in the wilderness of temptation? What's he doing? He's depending upon the Word of God. He's not, he's not giving in to temporal, worldly pleasures as Satan tempts him. False teachers will do that, right? But he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Look for Christ. Look for Christ in the lives of these false teachers. Recognize the way false teachers live like the world. Do you see Christ not taking a detour around Samaria, that place that Jews avoided? But he says to the disciples in John chapter 4, I must go through Samaria. Because he has a heart for all people. Do you see Christ talking to the Samaritan woman? And the disciples come along and say, we've got food, what are you doing? He says, I've got food you don't know about. What, you've been hiding? You've been hiding food? We went to town to get some food? No. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And everywhere I go, even in a place like Samaria that's disgusting to Jews, everywhere I go, people are savable. People are savable. People need to hear the truth. My food, what nourishes me is to do the will of the Father. Listen for Christ and look for Christ. You see this kind of compassion for the lost. Can you see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? We're looking for Christ. Do we see Christ in these false teachers? Can you see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as He's sweating as if it were drops of blood and He cries out, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's not naming and claiming anything here. He's saying, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, Father. You see this kind of humility? You see this kind of humble Christ-likeness that's found in the Son of God in these false teachers? Do you see the Holy Son of God with human hands? This is the thrice holy, holy, holy God. Come to earth, and now with human hands, He puts His hands on an unclean leper. Lepers were considered unclean and unholy. But the Son of God puts His hands on the leper and demonstrates compassion. Do you see this? Do you see Christ? Do you see His suffering and obedience on the cross? Abandoned by God and man, He still cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you see this kind of compassion and forgiveness? In false teachers, it's, sometimes it's very hard to see. Sometimes they'll look compassionate and forgiving. But these are just some of the things to look for that you may or may not see. Recognize the way false teachers live like the world. They live on the broad road, the easy road. At our house, we have a trampoline outside. I've been there about three years now. And for a while, there was this tree that was there beside the trampoline that was dead. I didn't want to admit that it was dead because I didn't want to have to pay $500 to get it cut down or try to help me get it cut, somebody get me cut down. It was really close to the house, so I couldn't 
get it cut down myself. So you know how that is. I'm stingy. My wife's like, when are we going to get that cut down? When are we going to get that cut down? Well, one of these days, you know. Well, it's right beside. I've got the trampoline right beside the dead tree. I've got four children. And one day, I'm outside, and the wind blows hard, and a big old huge limb falls crashing down. And I looked at my wife, Deanna, and I say, it's time to get the tree cut down. Time to bite the bullet and cut down the tree. Because that tree is not producing anything. It's obviously dead by looking at it. It's not bearing the fruit of leaves in the springtime. It's dead. It's worthless. All we can do is cut it up and give it away for firewood. That's the fate of false teachers. Verse 19. Look at it. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You might ask ourselves, why should we be concerned about that? Shouldn't that be exactly what happens to false teachers? Yes. At the same time, we are to witness to them and pray for them. False teachers are bound for judgment. Here's the thing. False teachers are bound for judgment along with their converts. They're going to be burned up too. The converts they produce will also go to hell. These could be people we love or care about. You ever see on some of these nature shows, shows about wolves and predators trying to get, trying to chase down, you know, there are a pack of them that are trying to chase down maybe a water buffalo, well, I mean, not a water buffalo, but, you know, that's a pretty big animal. <laughs> but, you know, some animal. Who do the wolves, who do the pack of wolves go after first? They go after the very young the very weak and the isolated. Sometimes they meet all three characteristics. So here's some points of application very quickly before I'm done. They go after the very young, these false teachers. And I mean young physically, young in age, also young spiritually. So a point of application I want to share with you in relation to false teachers and teaching the Word of God is in the I believe it's 2 Corinthians. We're told about the foundation that's been laid in Jesus Christ. Teachers of God are warned to build carefully on that foundation or their works will burn up. That means those of us who preach and teach will incur a stricter judgment, as it says in James. That means those of you who teach Sunday school, those of you who teach Awana, those of you who are parents, you are commanded to teach your children. You're not to just hand them off. I'm thankful for Awana and other ministries, junior high, senior high ministries that reinforce what we're trying to do in the home as parents. But you are to teach your children. These wolves are coming after them. And so you are to build carefully on that foundation. You're to teach them carefully and diligently, not just when they come to church. Secondly, the very weak, the wolves come after the very weak. The very weak spiritually, the very young spiritually, new Christians or Christians who have professed faith in Christ, maybe are truly saved, but they have not grown in the Lord like they should at all. And sometimes that's the local church's fault, and sometimes it's their own, and it may be a sign that they're actually not converts. But they'll come after them. I want to encourage you this morning. You may be the kind of person sitting here this morning that says, I just don't know much about my Bible. Or you might even say, if you were to be honest, you may say, Preacher, I get lost a lot of times and you're preaching. I don't even, I can't even follow you. 
and you're in that place where you've not grown like you could perhaps, maybe it's not your fault. Maybe it is, and maybe you're not a true convert. All I can do is encourage you to study the Word diligently. Study the Word diligently. If wolves were going to attack us back in that day, they would have a staff or something to run them off the shepherds would, right? Some type of weapon. For me, today, I'd have a 30-30 to shoot them with. But spiritually speaking, what we have is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. To fight off the wolves like Satan, like Jesus did in the wilderness, we need to know the Word of God and how to wield that sword. Study the Word diligently. We have small groups that meet in our church and Sunday school classes, folks, that we try to say a lot about. God had an announcement in there for a while. If you recognize that you're not where you need to be in your walk with the Lord, you're not strong spiritually like you should be and need to be, and all of us really should be there, right? Like all of us, we all need to grow more. You need to commit yourself to a small group. Don't just show up for church on Sunday morning. Come to Sunday school. Talk with me. Say, I can't make it to Sunday school. I work late at night. Well, there's some small groups in our church that meet. We'd love to try to get you plugged in. We'd love to do that. Study the Word diligently. Then there are the isolated. The isolated. You see those shows? What do the wolves do? They get the young. They get the weak. They find one. Maybe it's not young. Maybe it's not weak. Maybe it's just lazy. Well, I didn't feel like getting up this morning and following the herd. I just thought I'd sleep in. And here come the wolves because it's isolated. Here's this believer. I don't feel like I just think the wind's blowing a certain way. It's sunny outside. Let's go to, let's go to Bell Woods and go fishing. And that's according to the pattern. If everything's all right, I will just, well, hey, this morning, you know, I feel like I'll go to church today. Well, ain't God just going to be so thankful for you? For doing him a favor and showing up in his house like you're supposed to. I know I'm being sarcastic, but listen. If you're that kind of person that forsakes the assembly of yourselves with other believers, you're isolating yourself. And the wolves are licking their chops. And you say, well, I I know what I believe. I'm I'm okay. I know what I believe. What about those under your care? What about your grandkids who are looking to you for an example They need to be taught the Word of God. What about your children? What about your spouse? What about your neighbors? It's not just about you. It's really about the glory of God. One person has said, the greatest defense against false teaching is a local church community that knows, enjoys, and lives the Word of God and holds its leaders accountable. It's like my grandma always used to tell me. If I get out of line in preaching the Word of God, you need to jerk a knot in my tail. Hold the leaders accountable to what the Bible says to preach the Word. Now, I want to close this way and say this. As I thought about this in my office a while ago, this subject this morning about false teaching, I thought about this. That for some of you gathered in here this morning, this message about false teachers may be seen very far removed from how you're feeling this morning. You've come to church this morning, your heart's very heavy about something. It has nothing to do with false teachers. And maybe you thought you were going to come and hear a word from the Lord about your particular situation. And I want to say that you have. The gospel is what's going to sustain you no matter what's going on in your life. 
How is it going to be well with your soul in the midst of circumstances if it's not really well with your soul? If you're not really converted to Christ, if you're not a true believer? Or if you've been duped by the influence of false teachers, you're a believer, but because of lack of discernment or not really caring, the influence of those who would say, well, if you were obeying the Lord, you wouldn't have any suffering. You'd have wealth and health and prosperity and all these things. You'd have exactly what you want if you just prayed harder. Now, that's false teaching. You see, you need this gospel and you need this gospel protected to sustain you in however you're feeling this morning. That's why in the Lord's Supper that we're going to proclaim together in a few moments, in the Lord's Supper we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Why do we do that? He died in our place and He's coming for us. And the worst thing that can happen to us, as bad, and not to minimize what you're experiencing right now, but the worst thing that can happen to a believer is not going to happen. Amen? So we come this morning to remind ourselves of the good news of Christ and to guard this deposit of the faith. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this Gospel. I pray, Father, that we would be diligent to know the Gospel and study it to be in your house and fellowship with other believers, not just to show up, but, Lord, to participate in its fellowship. Lord, to teach it to others. Lord, I pray that you'll give us a a gracious spirit of discernment, Lord, so that we are not duped by the teachings of the world. Lord, many here this morning need a greater desire for the Word of God. The desire is not there like it should be. It might be indicative of somebody that's not been born again, or it could be indicative of simply feasting too much upon the world. They need to do a little fasting. Whatever the case is, Father, I pray you'd be gracious. I pray that you grant faith and repentance to the lost today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So right now, we're going to sing this hymn, familiar hymn. We'll sing all the stanzas of it that have ready for us. It is well with my soul. And as we sing, I just want to remind you that we would love to talk with you about how God may be at work in your heart. If you're not sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. I'd love to talk with you. Right now, during this time, you can come forward and we can talk. Or when the service is over today, I'll be standing in the back and I would love the opportunity for you to just come by and say, Preacher, Pastor, whatever your name is, I'd I'd like to get with you and talk with you sometime. And we'll try to set that up. But right now, let's arise, church. Let's sing together. Come and pray if you'd like.
is the gospel. It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. 
At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in the tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel. 